Hello and welcome to the Friday, May 20th, 22 edition of On Iowa Politics. This week, the Democratic primary, what's a governor's endorsement worth, and the legislature, is the end in sight? Hi, I'm James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette, and with me today are Jared McNett of the Sioux City Journal. Good morning, Jared. Good morning, James. You know, uh, every night can be debate night if you just try hard enough. <laughs> Aaron Murphy, State House Bureau Chief for the Gazette. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning, James. And Gazette Opinion Editor Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. First up, the Democratic Senate primary, with about three weeks until the primary election day. The hopefuls for the Democratic U.S. Senate nomination met in their second televised debate. Since we last talked, retired Admiral Mike Franken has launched his third TV ad. Former U.S. Rep. Abby Finkenauer has gone up on TV. And as far as I know, Glenn Hurst isn't running TV ads. Also, Franken released a poll commissioned by his campaign that showed him leading 42% to 40%. First was at 7%, half as much as undecided. That's quite a turnaround from a poll. Finkenauer released in April that showed her up, I think it was 53 to 26% over Franken. So let's go around the horn here and talk about the takeaways from the debate last night, Thursday night. Uh, who won, who lost, who improved their standing in the field? Aaron, we'll start with you since you were in the room. Uh, what was your take on this debate? Um, well, I, a couple things stood out to me. One, we did see a little more uh, cross candidate crossfire than the first time around. In, um, in particular, uh, Glenn Hurst um, um, trying to uh, challenge the the uh, resumes, I guess uh, you'd say, of Abby Finkenauer and Glenn Hurst. Or, I'm sorry, of of Mike Franken. Um, and I, I, I think I said on last week's podcast one of the interesting things you always look for is who, who goes on the attack, which usually signals that um, that candidate feels that they have ground to make up. And, and um, it, it seemed to me like Abby Finkenauer and Mike Franken still more or less stayed in their lanes. It, it, and that is a little bit surprising to me to, that neither of them have tried to, in, in either of those debates, um, draw more contrast between each other. Uh, they've been happy to just answer the questions that have been posed to them and, and, and not really... Um, offer any contrast with or, or criticism of their opponent, uh, but Glenn Hurst definitely took that route a, a couple times last night. Um, so that jumped out, and 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 I thought Glenn Hurst also did a good job of portraying the differences between himself and the other candidates. Now you mentioned the polling, and who knows how accurate that is as an internal poll of a primary congressional election or a, a Senate election, but. Um, it's it's believable that he's trailing those other two candidates, and and uh, if if he was hoping to change some minds among Iowa Democratic voters out there, I think he at the very least presented some evidence as to why they could. You know, he 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 portrayed himself as a very different candidate on on a number of those issues, um, and that's the other thing I'll I'll leave with this real quick is I think we saw some more differences among the candidates on some of those issues than we did in the first debate. Um, and I said this in my email newsletter this morning. I know that sounds a little bit like self back padding, but um, I, I thought that the candidates, we heard different answers on healthcare, on um, school loans, forgiveness, um, and a few other things that I thought that, uh, you know, if, if anybody was looking for daylight between these 
three candidates, especially between Frankenauer and Franken, I thought they saw a little bit of that last night. So hopefully that was helpful. I always want to ask, uh, was there anything we didn't see watching from home? Uh, Franken was coming off a bout of COVID-19. Uh, did that seem to affect him? And did everybody duck and cover when he sneezed or coughed? <laughs> no, no. The only thing that maybe you missed is he dropped his pin at one point and had to lean over and grab it. Mm. Um, uh, but but no, uh, it, I'll tell you, if anything, speaking of that, and I don't know how much it, he was speaking, so that I assume that the camera was on him, but I don't know how much it came through. Uh, I mentioned when Glenn Hurst kind of challenged their resumes and, and he, ch- he kind of asserted that just because you're in the military doesn't mean you have good leadership. Um, I don't know how well the camera caught this, but Mike Franken did not like that at <laughs> all. Uh, his his response was, um, I have really? more leadership. Yeah, yeah, really. And he said, I have more leadership in. And then he kind of paused there and then said, then I care to talk about that the, he wanted to take that sentence, I can promise you, in a much different direction, <laughs> in a much more colorful direction. I guarantee you that. Uh, so that was really interesting. Like I said, I, I know that was on TV. I don't know how well that came through, just how much uh, restraint Mike Franken was showing. He wanted to charge. Um, he wanted to charge Glenn Hurst with insubordination as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to the brig. <laughs> Walk the plank, man. Uh, Todd, we talked last week about how this race has become well a race um, and that there was more at stake in this debate than in the earlier debate. Who had the most at stake here? I mean, Aaron talked about uh, Glenn Hurst trying to make up ground, I guess. Um, but who had the most at stake here and, and did they do what they needed to do? Well, I think it seemed pretty clear that uh, Finkenauer and Franken are, you know, pretty comfortable with the way their campaigns are going. They didn't want to make a big mistake or say th- something wild. I think they're both, you know, probably, you know, they're, they're both on hopeful trajectories, I guess that, you know, they're there. It is a race. I think it's obvious that the gap is closed. And so they were being somewhat cautious and, you know, Glenn Hurst is trying to, you know, take advantage of a current that's kind of running through the democratic party among some activists that, you know, if we keep, if we keep nominating these safe center left candidates for statewide races, we're just going to keep losing. So we might as well go with the guy that wants to have 19 Supreme Court justices and, and you know, for, forgive all student debt and get rid of all private health insurance in, in favor of Medicare for all. I mean, these are sort of, you know, kind of a Bernie Sanders uh, wing of the party type issues. And, you know, there may be more than a few Democrats out there that, that you know, agree with that argument that they might as well uh, nominate a, a real progressive and and have, give voters a real choice. Uh, but yeah, I think I think it was pretty clear that Franken and Finkenauer are aware that things have gotten close, and so they they really didn't want to make a, a you know a mistake that would that would change that at this point. I think you know they're going to try to get their voters out and do all the organizational things that you need to do in a primary. So they didn't want to you know screw up on television. Two quick points. If I understood Glenn Hurst right. Not only does he want to uh, forgive student debt, but he wants to reimburse people who have paid off their student loans. Right. And and I'm thinking that the accumulated interest on my loans from 40 years ago is going to be pretty hefty. So, yeah, I, I, I may have to register as a Democrat and, and vote in this primary. Yeah, I, I've, already, <laughs> I've already filled out an invoice for what. Yeah. So I'll just 
keep that ready in case. The other thing that occurred to me listening to him, he talked about Tom Harkin, the retired Senator Tom Harkin, as sort of a role model. And, and I just wondered, could Tom Harkin get elected in Iowa today? Yeah, I think so, because Tom Harkin was a was not only a progressive, but he was also a really skilled politician. I mean, he knew Iowa very well, and so he knew when to, you know, agitate for progressive causes, and then he knew when to, you know, throw on the camel and, camo and blaze orange and go out and shoot <laughs> pheasants. I mean, you know, it's, he was kind of one of those rural Democrats that, you know, had, had those skills that, you know, he was able to basically come off as more as a more moderate, you know, politician at home than than maybe he was in Washington D.C. But yeah, I think I think he he probably could win today. It would be, and he had close races anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, he almost got knocked off a couple times. So yeah, yeah I don't, you know, uh, Harkin's background's a lot different than Glenn Hurst, but uh, you know, I, I I get the comparison. I mean, Harkin was always seen as a as a pretty, you know, a pretty left progressive senator. Mm-hmm. Jared, uh, any sense that this debate moved the dial for anyone? Um, was all this about Finkenauer and Franken, or did Hearst make his presence felt? Yeah, in terms of moving the dial, I'm usually a, uh, kind of a debate skeptic in terms of like the impact they have on you know actual polling or even the eventual outcome of a race. I, I tend to think unless someone just has a disastrous performance or just you know a monumentally great one. Uh, it's not going to end up mattering too much. And there's been data to back that up. There will be like shifts in like, say, a presidential cycle following a debate, but then those kind of neutralize after a little while. Um, as, as it relates to Hearst, um, you guys were already kind of talking about this a little. I do, I do think he did a good job of bringing up ideas that don't always come up in these debates, which is a good way for him to differentiate himself. You know, with the Supreme Court thing, um, you know, talking about going from nine justices to 19, um, even with the recent stuff we've seen with the Supreme Court and Roe v. Wade, this you know kind of idea of expanding the size of the court isn't something that is coming up with a lot of Democratic Party people. And I don't entirely understand why. There, there are polls that show that Americans are skeptical of the idea, but the polling isn't like so bad that you couldn't make a case for it if you if you pitched it right and you know had it on the right wavelength for people to, to rally behind. Um, so I, th- I think it is smart to for him to be talking about that kind of stuff if he wants to stand out. And then for him in particular, too, it also seemed like a good idea to be talking about, you know, antitrust and breaking up monol- monopolies, because those are kind of some of the only things left that there seems to be a little bit of a bipartisan appetite for. Uh, we've talked about that on here before with, you know, like carbon capture pipelines, too. And, you know, there are Republican legislators at the federal level who wanted you know, do some antitrust stuff for them. It's because they probably got banned from a social media account or whatever. And so they just want to, you know, take it to Twitter, but there is uh, some appetite for some of this stuff, even in circles you wouldn't necessarily expect. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to leave it there. Um, Moving on to uh, state politics. Governor Kim Reynolds seems to have gone where her predecessors never went this week. Reynolds, who is seeking a second four year term, um, bucked protocol and conventional wisdom by endorsing Barbara Niff, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Barbara Niff McCullough, who is challenging an incumbent Republican representative, John Thorpe, for an Iowa House seat. In the collective memories of assembled podcasters and Iowa political reporters with decades of experience, 
no one could recall a governor from either party endorsing a primary challenge to an incumbent party member. Aaron, uh, give us the background on this race and why the governor may have chosen to weigh in on this race. Yeah, so uh, this is all about the vouchers bill um, that's uh, holding up the legislative session, although now it sounds like not for much longer, and, and we'll eventually get to that. Um, but uh, uh, the governor has wanted this for a second year now, second straight year. It has been approved in the Senate and uh, stalled in the House. Not enough House Republicans are willing to vote for it. And uh, this year, um, the governor has chosen to apply some political pressure uh, now to um, the House Republicans who are um, unwilling to vote for uh, that bill. Uh, and this is the first tangible. We, we've kind of been hearing the rumors and hearing the possibilities and, and um, kind of some more, uh, um, I don't know if passive aggressive is the right word, uh, to use tactics and and this is the 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 first really on the nose approach that we've seen um and it'll be interesting to see more if if we see more uh, it's certainly possible in these last few weeks ahead of the primary um where she has endorsed um the challenger to an incumbent house republican who has said and John Thorpe is one of those who's, who's publicly said that he's not willing to vote for it yeah i think it's worth noting uh I think it's worth noting that Thorpe is a part of leadership in the House. He's an assistant majority party leader. Um, and uh, has there been any reaction to the governor's endorsement from House leadership from the state party? Not that I have heard yet, but that's going to be interesting. And, and uh, they're they're back in session on Monday. Um, so you can bet that will be a conversation point. And I'll probably have a better answer to that question for next week's podcast. There might be some uh, legislators who are walking around with nervous looks on their faces. <laughs> nervous or, or, or steam out, coming out of their ears. Yeah. Or, or maybe they're not there at all. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, you see, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. And this is going to be interesting in myriad ways. It's going to be interesting to see how that affects that race. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if this governor is reelected and House Republicans are the majority again next year, how they work together. Um, on legislation and the governor's priorities next year. Yeah, Todd, this seems to be a gamble by the governor. Uh, by going all in on McCullough, there seems to be one good outcome for the governor, that McCullough wins. If Thorpe wins, what's the cost to the governor? Well, I think it's going to be, you know, depending on how much voters have paid attention, generally folks that vote in the primary are a little more uh, active and, you know, more attentive to what's going on with the party and with their legislative members. Uh, but if that's the case, if they do understand the dynamics of this, if Thorpe was to win, that you know does deal a blow to the idea that the governor is going to be able to run on this school voucher idea, and that you know that a, you know a large majority of voters will will embrace that because the polling doesn't show that, and and you know it's it's a, it's it's kind of a risky, it's risky for her in this district and it's risky for her reelection. If she, you know, we've never seen a governor run basically against public schools. I mean, it's, it's completely uncharted territory. So, uh, yeah, so it will or be chartered territory. What, what did I say? No, 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 we're talking schools, you know, oh, so. right. oh, I'm it's early. I'm slow. Sorry. <laughs> that was good. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's, you know, there's, you know, in a way that there isn't a lot of political risk in that, you know, the winner of that primary is going to be the, the 
representative from that from that district. I mean, that's a very red yeah. red district, so they're not going to you know damage the the candidate and you know risk losing to a Democrat. But yeah, so she's putting the voucher bill on the line in this district and and probably in others that they haven't been so publicly about, you know, publicly announcing that they're endorsing or that they're backing certain candidates. And so it'll be interesting to see after the primary if that if that strategy uh, is is a smart one and, and whether they whether they she then changes course somehow going into the general election, although she's she's so personally tied to this proposal now, I don't I, I, I think she's going to have to, you know, mm-hmm. stick with it. What I'm hearing is that it's not that Thorpe is the 51st vote for the Voucher's Light Plan. I've heard that there are as many as two dozen Republicans who aren't ready to vote for it. Either will not vote for it or aren't ready to vote for it at this point. Aaron, I I don't know what you're hearing around the Capitol. Yes, similar. And and every time that we talk about this with with folks around the Capitol, um, given enough space in between, we keep hearing that number go up. It, it, it's not coming down. If anything, it's going in the other direction. So it's really interesting. And so many of the ones who opposed are, are retiring anyways. Um, and and I, I, it's just a really, really interesting political uh, strategy here um, uh, by the governor that, uh, as you guys said, it, that there's, this isn't all upside for her. This, this has... Mm-hmm. Uh, potential to uh, to backfire, and it's going to be really interesting to to watch over the coming weeks to the election and yeah. then next year. Well, and, and Thorpe's is a state trooper, right? Yeah, state trooper. Well, this, this yeah. has got to be this has got to be some sort of violation of that back the blue bill that she signed. Isn't it? Isn't, <laughs> isn't there probably some provision in there where <laughs> exactly? <laughs> and it's well, and, I, and it's, just, and it's fascinating too because it's one of those. I'm my voting with you 99% of the time is not enough, which is the case with all these House Republicans. It's not like these are, uh, um, you know, a stray number of House Republicans that vote with Democrats, you know, 25% of the time or something. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they're a, a caucus that has largely been in line with um, on almost all the major uh, priorities that they, they have it, that the governor has offered um, for whatever reason, this, bill is that big a deal well and it seems like you know you look back to you know when she signed the bill banning school mask mandates and and through that through last year and then into this year i mean she's you know she came and had the closed door meeting at in lynn at marion linmar parents and she's sort of spent the last year or more kind of surrounding herself with a lot of people who are pretty extreme voices on the right critical of public education and it seems like somehow all of that she's absorbed all that and now is a pretty much a believer that you know public education is you know indoctrinating kids and you know making x-rated books available and all that stuff so it i mean i i think she's i it's interesting i think she's outside the mainstream on that but she certainly has sought counsel from a lot of people that believe that kind of thing It, it seems to me that even if Reynolds and McCullough prevail in, the, in this primary race, there are a number of still a number of bad outcomes here. Off the bat, it seems like the end of party unity. Uh, I mean, for a sitting governor to endorse a challenger to somebody in her own party, uh, an incumbent in her own party, and, and if if leadership in the state party and, and the legislature don't respond to that, it just seems like that's the end of party unity. Um, and, and as Todd mentioned, uh, John Thorpe is a, a you know a state trooper, Iowa State Patrol. Um, so regardless of who wins the primary, I wonder if 
if this will affect uh, related, the governor's relations with her security detail, who are <laughs> Iowa State troopers, <laughs> will those troopers be willing to go the extra mile to do the hard 90 to keep the governor on schedule? Or? They'll, get a, they'll get a call and say, there's a there's a SUV going 30 miles an hour on Highway 30 and <laughs> someone inside just yelling. I don't I think there's some sort of situation we need to check in. Uh, the other point to that, James, along that line is these caucuses can become very, um, I don't know if unified is the right word. That There's a word I'm looking for that it's escaping me, but, but it, like it's a it's a fellowship that they can develop you know they they meet you're talking about like the house republican the house caucus. republican caucus thank you yes yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and these groups they meet almost every day to talk about issues they huddle in these rooms and and debate amongst each other and 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 it's kind of like a fellowship that they can and um and 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 you can develop a real sense of camaraderie and and protectiveness um, amongst each other when you're attacked from the outside and 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 there's a possibility that that this can kind of poison that well so to speak now as i say that there's a lot of house republicans who are very loyal to the governor and very supportive of everything she does and 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 probably doesn't matter but i uh, again it's it's just i think there are some open-ended questions here about the the, the long-term impact the, the other one i'm just going to raise real quick um I, I can't find the name of the challenger so forgive me as i'm scrolling here through the list but the house education committee chairman oh, yeah. dustin height has a primary challenge and it will be really interesting to see if the governor decides to weigh in on that one as well did, did someone just endorse his opponent a, a group did i believe it was the family leader. family leader that's right yeah yep because uh, Representative Dustin Haidt uh, took a, a has been, I don't know if he's been endorsed by the State Education Association, but they gave money to his campaign, which apparently is a violation of some commandment, uh, you know, that uh, Republicans shall not accept uh, donations from the Education Association. Uh, they probably, you know, as we forget our past, uh, probably forget that one time the Education Association gave some what of an endorsement to Terry Branstead's reelection campaign. Yeah. Uh, he promised when, to raise teacher pay. Yeah. 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 Uh, back when Republicans did things like that. Um, but Jared, I want to come around to you and, and talk more about, you know, this idea of the governor getting involved in this race and backing the challenger to her own party's incumbents. What is the message? What is the message to local party leaders? If, you know, uh, if you're the chairman of the Woodbury County Republican Party, which you're not, uh, <laughs> um, why should you go out and work your butt off to get somebody elected if the governor's going to come along and weigh in for some, you know, two years later, come weigh in for a challenger, um, you know, uh, or in, in incumbent on incumbent districts, uh, is she going to just, you know, look at who's for vouchers and make an endorsement based on that? Uh, maybe you know it's not too late for uh, for Jim Carlin to get an endorsement from uh, Governor Reynolds. I, I was at an event of his on uh, you know Monday night, which had decent turnout. And if you know she's feeling in the mood to start uh, you know endorsing challengers, she can uh, show up at one of his events and uh, start repping uh, him. Um, really though, I I wouldn't know what to do if I was a party chair and this happened um, under my watch because. It's not easy to cut bait with someone that you've helped get elected in the past and who, you know, you might even be 
you know, friends with on like a personal level. Um, and as a party chair, I don't think you have the same capital that the governor has to just pivot to supporting the challenger. Like your name and word doesn't go as far as the governor does, and you can't necessarily get away with the same bold moves that a governor can. Um, and then as we talked about too, you know, if the incumbent wins, but you were shilling for their opponent, then you're in a really weird spot, especially at a super local level. That's not going to help any efforts going forward to, to build the base more at the, the local level, I wouldn't think. Yeah. Um, Todd, is this a case of Reynolds simply following her political master, former President Donald Trump, by trying to be the queen maker, forming the party in her own image? Yeah, well, I mean, she she might be, you know, testing her clout like, you know, Trump has been. And it's mixed results, although he's he seemed to do well this week, uh, getting big liars and others <laughs> through the primaries. <laughs> big lie advocates. I don't. I, don't, I guess there's no difference, uh, but yeah, I mean, maybe she's, maybe she's thinking that I, I just, I think she's, you know, and it's, it's interesting that we've never really seen her do this. In fact, she's basically been willing to take what the le- legislature gives her, even when she, they don't give her what she called for in her, you know, condition of the state and in her agenda. Uh, she's, she's really never, you know, issued a big a big veto to leverage anything. Mm-hmm. She's she hasn't played hardball and until now, which is, as I say, the fact that she's doing it in a way that, you know, is being perceived as being against public education is just really I mean, this is just new in, in all sorts of ways. So yeah, maybe she's, you know, maybe she's gonna I don't know if there'll be any more endorsements. It's probably it's getting a little late since we're already voting. But uh, I guess if it works this time, maybe in the future if she gets reelected, she'll be she'll be candidates will seek the the Reynolds certification. Do you guys think she would be uh, doing this if it was someone that had been around in the state legislature even longer than uh, John Thorpe has? He's only been around since like 2018, right? Like if this was someone that had been in the legislature for a decade or more, would she be going at them too? Or is it only just because it's an incumbent who hasn't been around as long? I think that might be a factor. I mean, Thorpe, like I said, is an assistant majority leader, but he's not a chair of any committee. Um, uh, doesn't really hold that sort of a position that can, you know, uh, mess up her budget, you know, uh, as a budget committee chairman or something like that. So maybe she looks at him as somebody, you know, as a good test case. Dustin Haidt, uh, you know, is chairman of the education committee, uh, also very, um, active and involved on judiciary. So, I mean, uh, he has some key positions in in that regard. Um, But there are some other races, for example, the Lee Hine versus Steve Bradley. You've got Hine who's been there several years and chairs, I always forget this, Aaron, is it the Ways and Means or Approach? Yes, yep, Ways and Means. Ways and Means. And, And so, I mean, he's got some uh, clout or leverage there. Uh, Steve Bradley is a freshman, but uh, you know he's getting a lot of uh, backing from, I guess, the more conservative uh, Republicans, and I, I think he's also right, air quotes, on uh, uh, on the vouchers light plan. So, will the governor weigh in on an incumbent versus incumbent race? Um, you know, it, it, it's true. We're getting down here to the end that if you're going to make an endorsement, you're going to have to do it soon. Uh, because, you know, voting is underway. But, uh, you know, I, I think 
it could happen, um, you know. Uh, and as Aaron mentioned earlier, the, the legislature is back in session. The House is even coming back Monday. Um, you know, so after weeks of the gavel in, gavel out sessions every few days, uh, legislators, um, or at least the Senate was in action this week. They did some budget bills. Um, uh, hopefully setting up the sprint to adjournment um, and that would bring the session to a conclusion about a month after it's scheduled adjournment. Still better than the end of June, right, Aaron? <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> Are the skids greased for both chambers to come in and approve budget bills and go home? I'm looking for wood. I think this counts, so hold on here. Uh, knock on wood, it sounds like it's the real deal. Um, the, everything we're hearing is that uh, the plan is to come back on Monday and, and start the ball rolling and uh, don't stop until uh, they're done and ready to adjourn. So um, barring any last second and or unexpected flies in the ointment, um, I, I, it sounds like we're going to uh, get this thing wrapped up. It'll, it'll take a couple days. So um, basically add at least one day onto anything they think they can do. And so <laughs> I think they're thinking they can do it in two. So figure at least Wednesday and maybe Thursday. Um, they actually get done and, and get out of town. Thursday at 4.30 a.m. <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I'm afraid of. I I hope they at least decide to spread out, spread out the load, but I know that sometimes they feel like they have to force them to stay long enough mm -hmm. to encourage them to to get into that space where they want to get done. You're a lot I, I think that I think the the feeling is you're a lot more likely to get through a bill at midnight than you are because at, at uh, noon, you know, you'll face less resistance at noon. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we may still get some long nights, but uh, yeah, but yeah, but, but it does seem like they're, they're planning on finishing up. Of course. I mean, there are any number of speed bumps and potholes between legislative leaders plans and the road to sign a die. Todd, one thing the Senate did or didn't do was include a House-approved moratorium to prevent carbon pipeline developers from seeking eminent domain authority to seize property for their pipelines before next February. The Senate took it out, and according to one of the senators, the budget is now agreed upon, and the House amendment will not go back on onto the bill. Uh, you making any bets on that, that it's agreed upon? Well, it, it, I mean, it sounds like it with where leadership's concerned. I don't, you know, we saw it past the house uh and i don't know you know it's it's difficult to say what the sentiment is on it in the senate i mean there there was one senator who's from northwest iowa whose name is escaping me who filed the original bill that would have basically put basically said you can't take you can't use eminent domain for private projects and that was mysteriously pulled from consideration just before the committee meeting where it was to be taken up so nobody had to take a, a hard vote on that one uh, oh, I'm sure it just was, was a work in progress. I'm sure it had nothing to do with that, you know, but, <laughs> but I mean, I'm a little surprised because this, you know, I, I don't, it would have been a, the moratorium would have, the biggest accomplishment would have been to just sort of give Republicans a way to sort of brush aside the issue, you know, during the election campaign say, well, we've got this moratorium in place. We'll be keeping mm -hmm. an eye on it. 
But now it's, you know, it's out there and there are candidates who are, are running on that issue. And there are voters in rural areas that are really concerned and want answers and want to know, you know, where their legislators stand on this. And, uh, and these, a lot of these folks are in rural areas, of course, are, are Republican mm-hmm. voters and, and, you know, they're probably going to not like the fact that maybe their Republican representative thinks that this either just kind of dodges it or says they support the pipeline project. So uh, I know the ethanol folks are, are, you know, standing ready with their, with their uh, fingers on the, on the trigger. I wrote something that was critical of ethanol and I've gotten to know some uh, communications people in the ethanol industry since, since then. And so, yeah, I mean, so, so the industry is prepared to, I think the biggest impact, it, it'll be interesting to see how the governor sort of avoids it because she's been trying. Uh, she hasn't said she supports the pipeline project, but, you know, her former chief of staff and one of her biggest donors are, are you know, out front on the summit summit project and, and the governor who mentored her and, you know, left to go to China and allowed her to be governor. So I, I would, you know, I think the default is that everyone assumes that she's for it and, I, I don't know what, what impact that's going to have, but, you know, it's it's one more sort of divisive issue that might, you know, might hurt her. One of the reasons uh, uh, Senator Dennis Guth gave for stripping that amendment off the budget bill was that nothing's going to happen before February anyway, so we don't need this. But I, I, Todd, I think you're absolutely right that this would have sort of uh, nullified the issue on the campaign trail. Uh, Republicans could say, look, we passed a moratorium on eminent domain. You know, so nothing's going to happen before, you know, February. Uh, but now, uh, you know, it seems like Republicans aren't willing to take that step, e- even if it wasn't, you know, it really didn't uh, have any weight or really didn't mean anything. Uh, it just it seems like uh, they would have made life easier on the campaign trail if they approved that moratorium yeah. amendment. But well, one of the most powerful forces in the state house is the is the force that makes you do nothing. <laughs> I mean, <that's, laughs> let's not, let's just not get into this at all and uh, yeah. not, not do anything. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's always next session. <laughs> and there's also future editions of On Iowa Politics. If you enjoyed this podcast, tell your friends and subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Fan mail may be sent to podcasts at thegazette.com. And stay up to date on the Iowa legislature even if it is almost over, by subscribing to the Capital Digest newsletter under the Iowa Legislature tab at thegazette.com. And don't forget that the work of everyone you heard here today can be found on the pages and websites of the Quad City Times, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, Sioux City Journal, Mason City Globe Gazette, Muscatine Journal, Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Paleo will take us out. If you know an Iowa band or musician who should be on the podcast, send us a sound file and subscribe to On Iowa Politics. For Aaron, Todd, Jared, and our producer, Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening. Be well. Along the side of the bow, lucky waves, we live out in the clouds who stir and spill. On the wind, whipped moon like a cuticle rune, filed away and never read by the wind. 
Men have sworn for her blood, bearing one every kiss was her wish for rain. But the rain would go mad, become snow, with a laugh along Long Island Sound. Where the icebergs conspire Just like barbs on a wire A long, long island A long, long island A long, long island sound Do I bring out the worst in the ocean? Why do the waves spell out your name? A long, long island, a long, long island, a long, long island sound. And our cats will escape, they will go look for their mate. Long, long island sound Where the skies are all scraped By our empire state A long, long island A long, long island A long, long island sound Get a daily update from the Gazette with our daily news podcast. Add it to your podcast player or your Alexa-friendly device to get a bite-sized local news update each day. Check it out at thegazette.com slash podcasts.